appreciate our youth worship team. What a blessing. You know, as we are eager to have one of the outstanding characteristics of our church to be a church prayer, we need to mention two venues, of which I'm sure you are aware, but sometimes we forget about them. Every Sunday morning in the upstairs prayer room, there is a missions prayer band that meets, interceding for about an hour for various missionaries, various nations, and that's directed prayer time and very focused. Gordon and Sue lead that. Also, remember, we have the downstairs prayer room in which uh, on Sunday morning you might want to uh, go there, spend time just in silent prayer, preparing your heart for the service, uh, praying for whatever God brings to mind. So we have these two prayer venues going on at the same time before the service on Sunday morning. And I would encourage you to join one of these, either attend the missions prayer band or go to the prayer room and being prepare your heart and praying for the morning service. Uh, really, prayer is the breath that the church uh, breathes, isn't it? What a blessing. This is now, beloved, the second letter that I'm writing to you in which I'm stirring up your sincere minds that you might remember the words spoken by the holy prophets and the commandment of our Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Now know this first of all, that in the latter days mockers will come with their mocking following their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they have been from the beginning of the creation. Now when they maintain this, they are escaping their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago. And the earth was formed out of water and by water, by which also the world was destroyed, being flooded with water, through which the world at that time was destroyed. But by His Word, He has preserved the present heavens and the present world for fire and for the day of judgment and for the destruction of godly men. Now do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. Now the Lord is not slow concerning His promise, as some men count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not desiring that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will pass away with a roar, and all of the elements will be melted with fervent heat, and the world and all of its works will be burned up. Seeing then that all of these things will be destroyed in this way, 
what sort of people ought you to be in godly behavior and holiness and looking for and hastening the coming day of the Lord in which the heavens will be burned and the elements will melt with fervent heat. But according to his promise, we look to a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found in him in peace, spotless, and blameless, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. John Mark probably was the penman who penned these words, dictated by Peter not long before he died, preserved for us in our Bibles in 2 Peter chapter 3. Some weeks ago, I received an email from a couple with whom I'm very close. They really seem to be a part of my extended family. And if I understood them correctly, for the first time in their lives as a couple, they were reading through the Bible together. And as they read through the scriptures, various questions arose, and the wife kept asking her husband to explain this and explain that, and he always was unable to do so. (laughs) And so they sent me this email with a list of questions, very diverse, going in all directions. And uh, then they said this, yep, our lack of knowledge goes on endlessly. (laughs) Any direction toward credible resources would be eternally appreciated. Well, I wrote back an email, and part of it said this, given the broad range of topics within which your questions fall, I don't know of any single resource that would cover such a diverse set of questions. What if we did this? Each week you pose a question, and I will give it thought and ponder it along with you. Does that sound like a good idea? Well, immediately I got an email back. I gladly accept your great idea. (laughs) Ah, but with which one to begin? I believe it will be the one about the widespread killing, which is recorded in way too graphic terms. The question arises as to why God told the Israelites when they fought the Canaanites to kill every living thing, not only the innocents, but the livestock as well. Comparing that to some of the current trends of religious fervor that would wipe out Israel, how can anyone even... Uh, remotely uh, 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 approve of this. I guess I'd like an understanding as to why this would pass as acceptable. How would you like to get that question? (laughs) But notice what they're asking. How could we find acceptable God's ordering the extermination of an entire culture, including children and animals? Now, it was interesting to me that after I got this uh, email and wrote about an approximately two-page reply, uh, 
I found myself in a number of conversations and settings in which questions, not exactly the same, but in a general way of this nature, being raised and discussed. And as I prayed about it, I sensed that indeed it would be God's will for me to speak this morning upon God's patience, God's tolerance, and the limits thereof. So that's what we're going to talk about. First, we have to recognize that our God is a patient and tolerant God. And his first response to any situation is not vengeance and justice. Remember what Peter wrote, that uh, we should regard God's patience as salvation. That God is not desiring that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance and that we should regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Now every Sunday school child knows the story of Jonah. But let's think about it for a few minutes. Now Jonah was a prophet. 2 Kings 14.25 tells us that a prophecy that he gave to the king enabled Israel to regain some of the land that the Uh, Ninevites had taken away from them. He evidently was some sort of a statesman in Israel. And one day the word of God came to the prophet Jonah and it was this, go to the great city of Nineveh and cry out against the wickedness that is within the city. Now Nineveh was the arch enemy of Israel. It was the capital city of the Assyrians. And they gradually had been moving westward, taking more and more of the land of Israel and killing the people and taking the villages. Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh. Nineveh was several days' journey to the east. Jonah instead walked a short distance west to the port of Joppa and bought a ticket to Tarshish. Tarshish was in Spain, the western limit of the Mediterranean world. He was going to go as far from Nineveh as he could get and also run from God because God was the God of Israel. But that ship had not been very far in the water until a supernatural storm arose, more severe than anything those experienced sailors had ever seen. They knew it wasn't normal. And as various ones worshipped different gods, each one began to cry out to his God, Save us, deliver us, why are you doing this? And they noticed Jonah was asleep. They woke him up. Start crying out to your God. Maybe your God is the one that can do something. They all cried out, nothing happened. And finally they decided, well, let's cast lots to see if any of us are responsible for this. And it fell on Jonah. What have you done? And then he told them his story. What can we do? He said, throw me overboard. But these sailors seemed to have been noble men. They didn't throw him overboard. While Jonah cried out to God and the others prayed, we're told that they set out the oars and began to row and do their best to come to shore. But the storm raged so much, they could do nothing. Throw me overboard. They threw Jonah overboard. Immediately the storm stopped. And these pagan Gentile sailors knew 
Jehovah is God, and they worshiped him. Jonah began to sink deeper and deeper in the water. As he later described in that psalm that he wrote, he became entangled in the seaweeds. And then God prepared a great fish that came and swallowed him. (laughs) Now, you know, it's interesting. Some people question this story and say it must be just a fable. I have in my file records of this happening in the 1800s. One I especially remember, and I should have pulled out the file and read it, so my memory is somewhat vague. But this whaling ship uh, had speared a whale. They had started dismembering it and found in the belly a sailor. Then there a few days, his skin was bleached white, and he lived. Uh, so, you know, it could happen. But this was a miraculous event. We don't know what kind of fish it was. Scripture just says God prepared a great fish. So God did something special. Not only that, this fish, whatever kind it was, after Jonah was in his belly three days and three nights, which Jesus said later was a prefigure of his own burial and resurrection, this fish drew close to shore, belched, vomited, burped, did something, (laughs) and out popped Jonah, (laughs) waded out of the surf on the shore and headed for Nineveh. (laughs) Now, it would have been several days' journey. He would have had to walk through plains and deserts and mountains. Along the way, he would have encountered many villages, and no doubt, each place he stopped, he told his story. I frankly assume, and maybe I'm wrong, but I assume that as he got closer to Nineveh, probably some people ran on to Nineveh and said, there's this man coming with a message from Jehovah, his God. And let me tell you his story. Be that as it may, when Jonah arrived, Nineveh is a city about three miles long. He walked about halfway into it. And as he walked, he kept proclaiming, Jehovah is going to destroy this city in 40 days because of the wickedness. The people believed him. They began to repent and sackcloth and ashes and fasting and confessing their sins. And the king himself began to believe the message. And he sent out a decree throughout all the land, don't even let the animals eat, we'll all fast. Sackcloth and ashes. And the king himself sat in a pile of ashes. And he said, every man in the nation that has been cruel or wicked, repent. Well, Jonah went over and sat on a hill. He wanted to watch God destroy his arch enemy, Nineveh. (laughs) Didn't happen. God saw their repentance, heard their cries, and did not destroy the city. Have you ever heard of a preacher being upset because the folks responded to his sermon? (laughs) Jonah did got mad at God. (laughs) Wasn't this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. I knew you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, one who relents concerning calamity. He was scolding God. (laughs) But he was accurately describing him, wasn't he? 
gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. (laughs) The last verse of the book of Jonah, for me personally, has one of the tenderest descriptions of the character of God in all of Scripture. Jehovah said to Jonah, Why should I destroy this great city in which there are 120,000 people, little children who don't know their right hand from their left hand, and many cattle? God takes no delight in destruction. He is patient. He is tolerant. And that is such a beautiful, beautiful part of his character. Psalm 103.8 says, Jehovah is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. Now, I did a very quick cursory search of the Old Testament And in just a few moments, I found nine times in which that language is used to describe God. And I know if I'd really devoted myself to it, I probably could have filled a page. That's a description of the character of our God. When the first human sinned, by that sin they joined Satan's rebellion. But God did not respond in vengeance and justice. He cast a man and woman out of the garden. They entered a hostile world to fight their way in survival, always being blessed of God. And God, for the first time, spoke anything that related to the gospel. We call it the protoevangelium. In Genesis 3.15, God said to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you on the head. You shall bruise him on the heel. I wonder if Satan understood that. (laughs) If Adam and Eve heard it, I'm sure they didn't. Matter of fact, nobody understood it until the cross. You and I look back, oh yes, we understand that. But before the cross of Jesus, how could that have been understood? So God put the humans out of the garden in blessing. The centuries passed by, and behind the genealogies in chapters 4 and chapters 5, we finally get to chapter 6 and see what was going on behind the scenes. Man was becoming more and more rebellious, more and more toward wickedness, until Genesis chapter 6 describes the situation. It says, every intent and thought of man's heart was toward evil. God's tolerance and God's patience had reached its limit. And he said, enough. And as Peter said, the earth was formed out of water and by water through which also the world was destroyed, being flooded by water. Every creature that depended upon dry land 
and dry land produce and the air that surrounded that dry land died. Except for a righteous man, his family, and representatives of those species that God wanted to preserve to begin a new earth. They were saved in the ark. But God's patience had reached its limit. Then the centuries continued to pass by. Man's wickedness again began to, to flourish. And God again made a move. Now I think we need to pause here for a moment and talk a little bit about God's character, His holiness and sin. One of the things that is impossible for any human being to do is to fully grasp the character of God. The word holy means separate, apart, different. We cannot grasp fully the character of God, nor are we able to grasp the gravity of sin and how contradictory to God sin might be. I've sought myself to think of some illustration. Now, here's one that falls far short, but it works for me. I am horribly allergic to poison ivy. I grew up in the woods as a boy, and I would eat sulfur, and my companions would do the same thing. That way, if you eat sulfur, jiggers and ticks don't bother you. And I got along just fine. Something happened when I was 17. For the first time in my life, I had a reaction to poison ivy. From that time on, I have a terrible reaction, reaction to poison ivy. I've actually been in bed for a solid month, my body swollen like a balloon, and everything the doctors tried to do didn't help. And I've cried out to God to let me die. Heal me or let me die, and he wouldn't let me die. Doctors would give me steroid injections, wouldn't help at all. They did make me violent. <laughs> I remember one time I was on, had poison ivy, they gave me uh, prednisone, and I walked into the church building preparing to preach, and the, the deacons were having trouble with the air conditioners. They started to raise the windows. I shoved them out of the way, slammed down the windows, made the air conditioner work, and preached a fiery sermon. <laughs> Went to Cub Scout meeting Tuesday night, and one of the elders said, are you feeling better? I said, yes. He said, I sure am glad. <laughs> <laughs> to get rid of poison ivy one time after they tried everything else, I, I've never heard of before or after this, but they put me on a gurney and gave me a calcium drip. And when that happens, your whole body just feels like it's on fire. It worked. <laughs> one time they found something that worked. Poison ivy is my enemy. If I see poison ivy in a neighbor's yard, and I can see it a long ways off, <laughs> I don't bother it. <laughs> but I'll tell you what, if that neighbor's poison ivy gets on my fence row, it's gone. I go to Walmart and spend $25 and get a gallon of this stuff with a spray that I can stay a distance away, and I saturate it, and every day, watch it die. Jim Garrett and poison ivy cannot exist in the same place. 
Jehovah God and sin cannot exist in the same place. And yet God in his patience and tolerance <laughs> chose to do something about our sin. The first step he took toward fulfilling the promise of Genesis 3.15 was to speak to a man named Abram, whose hometown was Ur. I think Joel has visited Ur, now in Iraq. His father was Terah, who was the head of the clan. He was a patriarch. One of his sons died. He took Abram, Abram's wife, the, his nephew, the son of the son that had died. They traveled together up the Euphrates River. They left Ur for a reason we don't know why, other than later God said, I am the one who led Terah to do it. They traveled up the Euphrates River and finally turned west to uh, the town of Haran. And there they settled and Terah died. And then God spoke to Abram and said, leave behind your relatives, your family, the things you're familiar with. I'm going to take you to a country that's strange. But follow me. Leave everything behind. And so he did. He took his family but left behind that culture a few verses later, we read that God said, this is all going to belong to you, from the river of Egypt to the river Euphrates. It's all going to belong to you, your descendants. But he said, you can't have it right now. <laughs> the major tribe of the Canaanites was the Amorites the largest tribe. And often the name Amorite was used to describe all Canaanites. And Jehovah said, Abram, you can't have this right now because the Amorites occupy the land and their cup of sin is not yet full. Some versions say cup of iniquity. Some just say their iniquity is not complete. I'm being tolerant. I'm being patient. <laughs> I've not reached my limit with them yet. He said, your descendants are going to go into a strange land. They'll enslave them. They'll be there for four generations. Actually, 430 years is what it became. After that, they'll come back, and this land will be yours. But I'm still tolerating those Amorites. I'm being patient. <laughs> now, there was one group, however, with whom God said, enough. There were the two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities of the valley. And God said, I can't wait 400 years for them. The stench of their sin has reached my nostrils to the point I can't stand it anymore enough. And he rained down fire and brimstone and destroyed man, woman, child, animal. And the city was gone. Today we can't even accurately locate it. Tolerance and patience with those cities had reached its limit. When the children of Israel came back over four centuries later, God instructed them to go through the land. The Amorites' iniquity had reached the point God was no longer able to tolerate them, and he said, enough. And I want the sword of Israel to do with these people 
the same thing I did with Sodom and Gomorrah, only I did it then with fire and brimstone. Now I will do it with your sword. And so they went through the land. Man, woman, child, beasts were slain. Often the cities burned and destroyed because God's patience and God's tolerance with a people that thumbed its nose at the Jehovah of heaven. God said, enough. Sad to think about, isn't it? I have to wonder today where we are. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of Jehovah will come. The heavens will pass away with a roar. The elements will melt with fervent heat. And the earth and all of its works will be burned up. And it is this point this morning that I'm not sure what God wants me to say. <laughs> because I don't want to go beyond what he wants me to say. But there are a few comments that I think I do need to make. Our culture in America, certainly the world, but I'll say America, has reached the point, I wonder how far we are removed from God saying, enough. Greg and I were watching the final episode of American Idol. The name itself is a problem. <laughs> but we like to see who the winner was. Singing competition, supposedly. And then the grand finale of all things was Lady Gaga committing simulated sex on a platform. And Greg and I looked at each other, how? I don't know which one of us said it, but the other one quickly agreed. How could they have this on television? How long is God going to be patient with us? I talked to a young man the other day who has been so wounded in life tried sincerely to be a good employee, to be a good friend. He said, I've come to realize I just can't trust anybody anymore. <laughs> because every time he trusted someone, they defrauded him. I look at the church in America, and frankly, at times I almost get sick at my stomach. And I can imagine how God must feel. Almost every week there's some prominent Christian leader who's caught in avarice or sexual sin or some kind of financial scheme which embarrasses all of us <laughs> who bear the name of Christ. Jim Elliott, the missionary martyr, 
wrote this in a letter to his wife. What a ragged, shoddy thing Christianity has come to be. Honoring men and means and places and crowds. Oh Lord, deliver me from the spirit of this faithless generation. How I long to see the simplicity and powerful beauty of the New Testament fellowship reproduced, but no one seems to be similarly exercised here. So I must wait. Oh, Christ, let me know thee. Let me catch glimpses of thyself, seated and expectant in glory. And oh, God, let me rest there despite all of this wrong surging around me. Who am I, and yet I have to say, who express my sympathy? Could Paul and Peter and James and John visit most church services in America today? They would wonder, what's this? Where are we? This is so different from the church that Jesus built. Men have taken their liberties and made it to fit their culture or their wants or their wishes without looking in the word of God to see what the Lord intends for the church to be. But then, of course, I have to look in the mirror (laughs) and realize how far Jim Garrett falls short of the image of the Lord Jesus Christ And I have to ask, how long will he be patient with me? I want to be found by him when he comes in peace, spotless and blameless as Peter is. I thank God he's a patient God. I thank God he is a tolerant God. And I thank God the end of that is a long way off from the beginning. And I also thank God as we sang about his grace today, perfection isn't what is required. Trust in the cross of Jesus, which we honored and in which we declared our faith as we partook of the loaf and the cup this morning. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name.